Our speaker this evening is Dr. Don Richardson. He's a fellow both of this society and the American Institute for Aeronautics and Astronautics, and in fact the immediate past president of AIAA. He's a pilot and engineer with a wealth of experience in a variety of roles, and he'll be speaking on the remarkable story of a project that he worked on. A design that started as a glider and later flew with piston engines, with uh, turboprops, and also with jet engines. Don, we're very welcome back to the Society, and we look forward to hearing your lecture. Well, I have to say, uh, I truly appreciate the opportunity, uh, both from the, the Royal Aeronautical Society, of which I'm a pledged fellow, and uh, the historical group, to, to go back a half a century and more. And, and uh, it's, it's a semi-ego trip to, to look back and, and see how exciting it was 50, 60 years ago. Uh, as president of the AIAA, one of my charters has been to try to re-excite the young people in aviation. I mean, in, in those days, those days being 1950, uh, the number of people and the number of airplanes that you could work on were, were just astounding. It was the most exciting time I've ever had other than the fact that I joined AIAA and I got married the same month in 1948, and that was pretty exciting. But uh, uh, it was fun working in this industry then, really, really fun. And uh, it's not an easy thing to get people as excited when they're 23 and 24 years old. Like I see a lot of people here with hair the same color as mine. And so I'll say, as it was then. So. Uh, with that, I will try to, uh, oh, he's such a nice guy. He even labeled one key for forward and one key for back. He's seen me do this before. What I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, start with that thing called a glider. And I'm going to take you through two different programs. Uh, they're different airplanes. That they're made by the, they were made by the same company. I was lucky enough to be an aerodynamicist and flight test engineer for the company that made both of these airframes. I then became an aerodynamicist for uh, Curtis Wright propellers, so I worked on the propellers on these aircraft. And then I went to work uh, for Hiller Helicopters, which is uh, the first aircraft that I'm going to talk about, which is the X-18 tilt wing. So, in three different employment uh, regimes, I've, 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 I have personally worked on these things. So this is not a, a research uh, of things that happened that I read about. You know, I, I was there. So I'm going to take you through both of those programs and show you that why it was so exciting. Now, we all remember, well, we've read about uh, the, the gliding experiments, okay, from Sir George Cayley to uh, Otto Lilienthal, and then to the Wright brothers, 
And I know that's a focused view, but that's, that's uh, you'll have to excuse from where I come. Uh, and remember that uh, the Wright brothers taught themselves how to fly with kites, and then gliders, and then uh, the powered aircraft. But the, wing, the ability to, to use that wing warping technique started with kites, but really started then with gliders. Now that's a glider. There's no <laughs> visible means of propulsion there, and you probably can't see it, but not in that picture, but it's, it's being towed. That's called the CG-18A glider. It was, uh, well, let me see. I'm going to have to cheat just a little bit here. It was a glider. It was uh, about 30,000-pound glider. It was all metal. It was built in 1948. And, uh, <coughs> the, the chief engineer of the company, this was called Chase Aircraft, the chief engineer of the company was a guy named Michael Strukoff, who was uh, a profane, uh, mercurial Russian army captain who emigrated, went over to the United States and formed a company to build a wooden glider. Got a contract to build that metal glider there. And then ultimately, that's a different glider. Now, believe it or not, that was designed to carry 60 passengers, 60, well, involuntary passengers, let's put it that way. Uh, but that was all metal. So this is where this story starts, these two gliders. Now, the first one I'm going to talk about evolved into the thing called the X-18 tilt-wing aircraft, and I've called it the jigsaw puzzle aircraft because it's made of pieces very disparate pieces of different kinds of vehicles put together to form this, this tilt-wing demonstrator. Again, there's your glider. That was the uh, CG-18 glider. That's what it was designed to be. It was a glider. There it is flying, kind of. Lo and behold, in those days, back in the late 40s, the early 50s, why? Contracts were a lot easier to get than they are now. Uh, we didn't have the big evaluation process. It was just kind of a, you get a gleam in your eye, you find the right guy that goes this way, and his hand has got a pen in it, and you got a contract to do something. So what we did was we, we when I say we, I was involved in this program. Those are, uh, we put R1820 piston engines on that airplane that became the, the 122C uh, troop transport. Now, I want you to remember, look at this uh, vehicle. Let me see if I know how to do this. Yes, I do. Look at the aspect ratio of that wing, because I'm going to bring it back to you in a little bit. Now, as I said, the <clears throat> they took that, that we only built 13 of those. That's why the Y on that designator. The Y on the designator in, in, in those days in the, uh, in the Air Force in the United States meant service test quantity. So we built 13 of those things. They took this <clears throat> base airframe, and in 1956, 
for whatever reason, and I was not asked. They, uh, uh, they selected that as the airframe to be a test vehicle for a tilt-wing aircraft. And so uh, it uh, started in 56. We did a wind tunnel test program, which I'm going to show you a little bit about in a moment, in 57, 58. It finally got off the ground, if you will, 20 feet. Uh, in 1959, and then in 1960 and 61, we flight tested it. It's probably now a Budweiser beer can, because I can't find it, and it hurts me, but I, I, I just can't. Now, here's the uh, specifications for the aircraft. Just a minute, let me get, I want to show you what we did to it. It's kind of cruel. The airplane, as it was in the original state, this YC-122C, had about 800 and some odd square feet of wing area. Well, when, when our tin can cutters got through with it, it had 500 square feet of wing area. And I remember I, I told you the, the aspect ratio of the one that you saw flying was 11. When we got finished with it, it was a little over four, and I'll show you a picture of that in a, in a moment. Now, um, you can't really read that. I don't know why, but that's the way it is. Uh, we, we found that we had to rotate the wing to 87 degrees off of uh, horizontal in order to vertically lift. If we put it to 90, it would go backwards, which is fine if that's what you wanted to do, but we didn't want to do that. So theoretically now, you're looking at these two numbers, 45,000 pounds of vertical thrust, and I'll show you some more about that in a minute, for a takeoff weight of 33,000 pounds, theoretically it's going to go that way if you want it to, and sometimes if you didn't want to. So what we did was we took the C-122C, which originally flew as a glider. That airframe flew as a glider. And then when we put the R-1820s on it, it, it flew as a piston airplane. And we married it with, I don't know if you remember this thing called a pogo. It was a tail sitter. There were two of them. There was one by Convair and there was one by Lockheed. And uh, those were the power plants that were used to power this jigsaw puzzle aircraft. And we also used uh, a Westinghouse jet that we mounted in the fuselage, and I'll show you why we did that in just a moment. So there's the, there's the airplane with the R-1820s in it. Ugly looking thing, isn't it? And it's fixed gear, nose wheel retracted. Boy, I'm sure that helped a lot. <laughs> now there's the Pogo. Now, that's sitting on its tail. Uh, when it flew as a flight test vehicle, it had a carriage on it, a welded steel carriage that dropped off when it took off. It, it, it took off like an airplane, straight. There's two things about this. One is we used that counter-rotating propeller turboprop as the propulsion system. We also used 
at the behest of our test pilots, the ejection seat. Another a little vignette. Uh, this airplane was the whole vehicle was put together by a company called Hiller Helicopters, and it's in the on the west coast of uh, of the United States, just south of San Francisco, a little bit. I'm, I'm mentioning that for a reason. But I was in the uh, the engineering building, and I, and and I heard this really bad commotion outside. And what had happened was we had a uh, uh, an intern student. Uh, uh, undergraduate from Stanford who's helping us out. And we said, well, what we'd like you to do is uh, take the ejection seat out of the airplane. You see where I'm going. It, the airplane was sitting this way, not like that, sitting this way in this carriage. And this, this really bright, energetic 20-year-old opened the canopy, stood on the wing, leaned in, and push the red button. Well, it was armed. And it caught him right here. And it, he flew about 75 feet and landed on some oil drums and survived. I mean, he was compacted significantly, but that seat just flew him 75 feet through the air. Thank goodness. Oh, my goodness. Thank goodness that it didn't, uh, it didn't kill him. But uh, I guess you really had to tell them, don't touch the red button, get the manual, and do something else. Now, here's the, uh, here's the airplane in the hangar. There, you, you can kind of see that this is the fuselage that you saw flying before. And here's the wing here. Now, this is not a nasty story, but I have to tell it because it happened again. I was there. Uh, that's earthquake country, heavy-duty earthquake country out there in, in uh, California. And I was in the, I guess in your phrase, I was in the loo. And all of a sudden, the doors, the stalls, the, one of the, the stalls was shaking back and forth, back and forth. And I thought, my Lord, I really don't want to know what's on the other side of that, what's happening there. Well, it was an earthquake. And it took and scattered these things, particularly the wing. We would we called jigging the wing. So we uh, we had to take about three more weeks to rejig the wing from that earthquake. And when I got home, my wife said, "Well, you should have seen our younger son. He was in his high chair, and she went to feed him, and he wasn't there because the high chair just walked right across the kitchen floor." It was a fairly significant earthquake, nothing like what we've seen recently. But, but anyway, that's we've been in the process of putting that airplane together, re-putting it together. Now, one of the one of the control system issues here was this was 1956. We didn't have the kind of computer control automatic flight control systems that we have now. And, and what a mess. I mean, the ailerons on the 122 were, were hydraulically operated. The rudder was cables. The elevator was cables. And the propellers, they were Curtis Wright propellers, those turboprop counter-rotating propellers, they were electrical. Oh, boy. 
Now realize that when you transition the wing from horizontal to vertical, the functions change. And so they have to be blended according to the angle of the, of the wing. And when you're doing that, and you're doing it with cables and pulleys, it is just unbelievable. And then uh, as far as the uh, pitch control is concerned, that was a different matter, which I'll, I'll show you in a second. But I can tell you, I've seen now uh, a mock-up. I gave uh, part of this talk a couple of years ago. Uh, you've never seen anything like it in your life. Uh, all these cables and pulleys and hydraulic actuators. And the, the joke, which I know you've heard before, is if you put a dove inside there, it could not fly out. It was just like that. If I can stop touching this. Uh, it was, I don't know how they ever did it. Uh, so we, didn't, we didn't have computers that flew in those days. So it was a, it was a terrible mess. Uh, and figure this. As you can imagine, in conventional flight, if you want to pitch, you pull on the yoke and the elevator moves. If you want to roll, you turn the yoke and the ailerons move. And if you want to yaw or coordinate, you kick the rudder and the rudder moves. That's the way God meant airplanes to fly. Well, she threw a curve at us. Because when you're in vertical flight, to pitch, we put in the fuselage of that airplane this jet engine. And we ducted it out the tail with a kind of a butterfly valve so that you can control the direction of the exhaust up or down to pitch the airplane. If you wanted to roll the airplane, you apply differential thrust to the two engines, because they're pointing this way now. And if you wanted to yaw the airplane, you move the ailerons, and you got a yawing moment due to these the slipstream of the, of the differentially deflected ailerons. But from a pilot's point of view, if you roll, you, you, you move the same. If you want to roll, you, you, you turn the yoke. I mean, you can't relearn how to fly an airplane. And if you want to yaw, you kick the, the rudder pedal. Only the rudder pedal didn't move the rudder anymore. It moved the ailerons. So, uh, and the, the other thing was, in our finite wisdom, we didn't cross-shaft the engines. We just didn't have the technology to do that. And that resulted in something which I'll talk about in a minute. So, that, I mean, it's, there was just a safety conference here just this afternoon or today. That is not the safest thing in the world to put your body in when you're going up in an airplane. Now, here's the way that poor thing looked. Here it is in airplane configuration. Look at the size of those propellers. Wow. There's that thrust. The, the, the jet engine is, is right about there inside the fuselage. There was an air intake right up on the top. And it entered there, and it came out here. And then you, with a push-pull rod, you put a, a deflector in here, and you, you, you diverted the, 
the exhaust either down or up, and that pitched the airplane. There's it at about 45 degrees, and there it is at 87 degrees. It is one of the ugliest airplanes I have ever had the pleasure to work on. Now what we did, we were not totally dumb, but kind of. We uh, took a one-eighth scale model of that and put it in the tunnel at Lang Nessa Langley. It was all remote control. It, flew, it was a free flight uh, test in the full-scale tunnel. And there is a report here, uh, actually it was published, uh, describing that. But I put the exclamation point here. I can't remember why we did this. We had four pilots flying that airplane at the same time. We had a roll pilot, a pitch pilot, a yaw pilot, and a wing tilt pilot. Now, talk about pre-cockpit resource management. Lordy dordy, it took a lot of time because we didn't have simulators. That's, that's the way we flew that, that flight test. It was just, sometimes you look back over your shoulder and you say, how did I ever get here? But that's what we did. Now there's the airplane flying in the tunnel. Uh, this is an indication of the wing tilt. So it, it is actually flying free flight in the tunnel, hopefully controlled by the concurrent actions of those four pilots. Anyway. Now here, we, we had a special uh, test rig that we used to make sure that the airplane didn't go anywhere. But we, uh, this is looking at it in the airplane in the airplane mode. Now, this is another interesting thing. One of my jobs as a project aerodynamicist was uh, doing some takeoff calculations. And I found out that with the wing latched all the way down, as it is there, uh, we reached a tire explosion speed before we reached takeoff speed, which was a not nice thing to do either. So we ended up having to take off with the wing at about seven degrees because the tires would just blow. Theoretically, I, we, we never tested it to destruction, but probably uh, it, it would have let go in a, with a big bang. Now, there it is in the hover configuration. Now, look at that aspect ratio. <laughs> that looks like the... Uh, the F-104, the Lockheed the missile with a guy in it. That, I mean, if, if you were taxiing down the runway or flying and you saw that thing coming at you, wouldn't you just run for the hills? That is ugly. But, I mean, and, and that nice cowling that was, was around the, the pogo, no, it's just kind of sitting out there. There's no spinner. There's this big scoop here. We're lucky we were able to find two engines. But uh, that's what they paid us to do. There it is flying. Uh, the flight chase airplane in those days, that was a T-28 piston airplane. Lord only knows what this is. But there again, you can see the, uh, the pitch control flow diverter there. It was uh, a collection of parts.
I mean, power plants from this beautiful, sleek pogo uh, fuselage and tail from the, from the glider, wing chopped off with meat cleavers, and then this silly looking thing sticking out the back. It looks like uh, you, you took a chimney from a log cabin and turned it horizontal. But it flew, and I'll, I'll tell you about that. Again, it first flew in 1959. It, literally, it was an involuntary, it was a taxi, high-speed taxi test, and, and it, it hopped into the air. Sounds like Howard Hughes, doesn't it? And then uh, just four days later, it did fly. It flew well. It flew satisfactorily. It got that down again in the same condition as it went up. There were a total of, you can't see that, there were a total of 13 flights. And it got up to 45 degrees wing tilt. And here's one of the reasons why. Uh, this, and I happen to have the flight test report right here, and if you'll allow me, I'm just going to quote a little bit from it. But uh, they went up and they started, they, they did a few preliminary things, and then they put the wing tilt up at 10 degrees. So we were just slowly working our way through the transition. When one of, it just does sound like Howard Hughes. If you've seen the movie The Aviator, uh, one of the counter-rotating propellers went south, and they had not cross-shafted. So, oh boy, we have a slight rolling moment. Slight rolling moment was it went over on its back, went into an inverted flat spin, and when it stabilized, it was in a 110-degree dive. Now, this flight test report here says, Recovery was initiated with the rotation, rotation being stopped with the airplane slightly inverted. Hello? Slightly inverted? In a steep nose-down attitude, approximately 110-degree dive angle. There's a, there's a parenthetical expression here written in, in pencil. It says, an unexpected wild ride. Yeah, I reckon. I reckon so. Uh, and what happened was this thing started at 7,000 feet above ground level. When they got it stabilized, it was at 2,500 feet, 110 degrees down. Ooh. Now this, I, I, I have personally talked to this, this uh, pilot, uh, so I know that this is all really very true. And what happened was that the, uh, the electric propeller malfunctioned, and it wasn't cross-shafted. And uh, so they, they got it stabilized. They went in for a landing, and it happened again. And it happened at 250 feet. They were kind of ready for it, so the co-pilot had his hand right on the pitch control, the, the, the override on the pitch control. And they got back up, came back down in, and landed. Uh, but he had to hold his hand on a pitch control override the entire time. He couldn't do his other co-pilot co functions. He, said, he says here, if, I, if it had rolled again, I would not be writing this. I guess that's probably true. That, though, the last sentence is cool. The final results of these tests await data analysis. 
I was probably going to put another parenthetical expression here, which says, after a visit to laundry. So that's the story of one of those gliders, the first one, the one that went from glider to R1820 piston engines to this jigsaw puzzle. Now let's go to a different airplane. This is the CG-20 glider. This is the one that carries 60, 60 involuntary passengers. Uh, now, let's see if I got another picture of this. Well, let's leave this for now. I was there, this is in, in New Jersey, a field in New Jersey where the plane was built. I was there when you would call it a Dakota, a DC-3, flew by trailing a big bungee cord that were doing a flyby pickup. Well, this thing was designed to hold 70,000 pound gross weight, but we couldn't find an airplane strong enough to tow it, so we limited it to 40,000 pounds. So here's this sucker with this snatch thing in the front and this DC-3 flying by trailing a hook. And I swear, I know I, I, I overreacted, but I swear that DC-3 almost stopped in midair. The bungee cord went out like that, and I could see this thing slowing down and pitching up like that. And then finally, it started to go like that again. Oh, whew. That was one of the, I've had my times in, in, in airplanes, but that was one of the thrillingest things I've ever seen was, I thought, sure, we were going to have two big aluminum balls there right on that runway, but it, it did, they did it once, and I don't, know, I don't know about the glider pilot, but I know what the TC-3 pilot said, and it wasn't, I'll do that again. Now, <clears throat> what I'm going to do now is I'm going to show you some of the variants off of that glider, and there's one here that I haven't shown you, but I'm going to show you, again, the glider, the original piston prop, the production piston prop, a jet version of it, an amphibian version of it, and a boundary layer controlled version of it. Now there's the uh, original C-123. Uh, it's got uh, R-2800 piston engines in it here. And I call your attention to the vertical tail. And the reason for that is my first job, I was 24 years old. My first job was, we had lost one of these airplanes uh, because uh, it's uh, VMC, it's uh, minimum control speed was too, was too high and we lost an engine on takeoff and there wasn't enough rudder power to hold the airplane. Another, I gave this subset of this lecture, and I'm not, I'm not denigrating uh, the American college system, but I gave it to an, an AIAA chapter, student chapter in the University of Maryland, which has a pretty good aerospace engineering course. And I used the phrase VMC. Uh, how many people here know what VMC is? Oh. <laughs> The older ones do. 
Now that's the speed at, at, at which if you lose an engine, you can just hold it without rolling and or veering off. Not one student out of the 40 that I was talking to knew what BMC was. Now somehow I think there's still multi-engine aircraft out there that need to know what BMC is, but they're not teaching it in the college. That's just a, one of my many soap soap no, operas, soap boxes that I step, stand up on. But that's the original. Uh, I my first job was to redesign that tail to get more rudder power, to get minimum control speed down, so that you can get, take off without killing yourself. Now there, uh, that's a lousy picture. But here's here's what the tail ended up at. It had a higher aspect ratio, and it also had a dorsal fin on it. So if I've done nothing else in my life, I made that ugly tail even uglier but safer. That's the production version. And this is another little vignette here that profane mercurial Russian captain. Uh, you've heard of Henry Kaiser in World War II with the victory ships? Well, Henry Kaiser built a lot of ships, but he also bought an ownership, part ownership in this company. And uh, then the profane captain and Henry Kaiser personally got into a, a difference of opinion at about 140 decibels. And uh, they broke up. Well, we got this airplane worked so well that we got a contract to build 302 of them. We'd only built five. We were uh, a very small company. So ultimately, uh, when Henry Kaiser broke off, he wanted to build. Anyway, the government didn't think that we could build 300 of those things. So they put it out for bid, and Fairchild won the contract. And so most of you who know of this airplane, and it served its most of its tour in Vietnam, uh, and the CIA used them, whatever. Uh, it was they call it the Fairchild C-123, but actually it was designed and built by uh, this Russian. That's, and I should have called your attention to it before, but the the number on that airplane is 787. That's the number of the glider that you saw in the beginning. That is the glider, only it grew something. And what that is, is the inboard pod from a B-47, the Stratofort. There's two J-47 engines in that pod, and we hung one under each wing of that glider. Now, that's the first flight, and I'm sitting right in the back there. This is going to drop ramp, I'm sitting in the back there. Now, remember, we, don't, we didn't have simulators to speak of in, in those days. And so just like the runway behind you is of absolutely no benefit to you, other than full thrust on the first flight is of absolutely no benefit to you. So what the pilots did was they, you can't say the firewall anymore, but they pushed the throttles all the way to the front every pound of thrust that you could get. Okay, 
That was a glider airframe. That airframe was structurally limited to 210 knots indicated airspeed. Well, you never saw 210 knots come up so fast when those four J-47s got powered up. So the logical thing for the pilot to do was pull back. I mean, he was flying. Pull back, try to hold that airspeed down. Rather than take thrust off, that was that never entered his mind. Well, in those days, again, unless you were looping or doing some unusual flight attitudes, three, four, five degree deck angle was about what you would expect it to be in a, in a cargo airplane. Not like the 20 degrees that you have now. Well, we got the 20 degrees, and I thought for sure I was going to go right out the back of the airplane. And I didn't have an ejection seat. I had a parachute, but I didn't have an ejection seat. When you fly test an airplane like that, well, almost any airplane, for CG control, normally what you do is you, you have, well, not normally, but in many cases, you have tanks with water in them, and you fill one or the other to maintain the center of gravity that you want to test to. But not this, those four energy sinks up there suck that fuel so fast that for CG control, we filled those tanks with fuel. So here I am sitting in that airplane, surrounded in all directions by JP-4, everywhere. And it just sucked it up like that. But that was another, I didn't get any flight pay for that either. It's too late now. Anyway, uh, that flew, that was the first US manufactured jet transport ever. Just another, just another glider gone wrong. Now look at this airplane. Again, that tail is from one of the original designs before it went into the C-123B. This airplane was another crazy idea that the Air Force had. They wanted an airplane that could land on land, land on water, land on snow, land on ice. So what we did was, these poor airframes, we sealed the bottom of the fuselage and the drop ramp here. We put wingtip floats on this airplane. We put hydroskis on it, hydraulically operated hydroskis. What they would do is they would taxi that airplane just bobbing up and down like a cork till it got to about 20 miles an hour. Then the pilot would actuate the hydroskis, and they'd pop down this two, three, four feet. And, and now it's a hydrofoil. And that's how we flew that airplane. So this poor glider is now bobbing around on the Patuxent River in, in, in Maryland. There it is to prove that it really did have wheels at, concurrently. Still got the tip floats. Uh, we put uh, four-blade propellers on it to get the diameter down enough so that it wouldn't uh, get in the spray too, too bad. And there it is flying. That's, how, that's what those hydroskis look like. That was one rascal of an airplane. But it flew, and then they decided, like so many other airplanes in that era, we really didn't want that after all, but gee, it sure did. Seemed like a good idea at the time, I believe this the way they express it. Oh, this is my favorite one. This is, a, this is an interesting story. 
This is a boundary layer control version of the uh, C-123. And in, in our inimitable style of not cross-shafting things, in each wing, in here, is a turbomeca small jet engine, which is intaking over the inboard flaps and exhausting over the outboard flaps and the aileron. So there's a jet engine in that, in that wing here. There's another one in that wing there, not cross-connected. Now, part of the story of this airplane is we wanted to be sure that the ducting and the, uh, and the vanes in the ducting were, were okay. <clears throat> so what we did was we, we built a full-scale mock-up uh, out of uh, plexiglass so you could see the tufting and, and all this other stuff. And we took it to a steam turbine company in New Jersey, and they, they supplied the power to replicate the jet engine. We didn't want to run the jet engine in plexiglass. That would have been a short run. Um, now, I, I, I served in, in the infantry in World War II and in Italy. And when somebody says, hit the ground, you don't forget that. You hit the ground. Well, there we were pumping air through that plexiglass thing. And some really smart guy looked at that plexiglass and it's starting to bulge. We kind of misinterpreted the structural integrity of the plexiglass with all that air pumping through it. And he said, hit the ground. I'm sure you know plexiglass is just like shrapnel. Those sharp pieces went everywhere. Didn't hurt a soul, but had the impact kind of like when that thing went over 110 degrees. It really got our attention. But uh, that was just one of, a, one of the memories. Now, that airplane, oh, by the way, there, VMC again, that airplane, we were looking for a, a CL max, lift coefficient maximum of 4.2, which in those days was pretty high. And that meant that you were going to get a short takeoff run and you're going to get a slow takeoff speed. Well, now the rudder power comes in again because the yawing moment, if you lost an engine, was, was quite severe at slow speeds. And so we actually had to put uh, controllable tip rudders on, on the tail of that airplane. Now, here's where the profane nature of our chief engineer and owner was. Uh, picture, in those days, this airplane was designed and built in a one big hangar. On the ground floor was the sheet metal fenders. On the second non-air-conditioned floor was all of the engineering. And it's a big, long hangar, big, long building. And in the middle are all the draftsmen. And on the perimeter, and this was pretty typical, on the perimeter are all the specialties uh, and just cubicles, uh, aerodynamics and flight test over here, structures over there, propulsion over here. Well, we had just run film of the takeoff tests of this airplane, and for whatever reason, uh, Mr. Strukov was not happy. And so lucky Don... I've got the can with the 16 millimeter film in it sitting on my desk. 
and here in view of the entire company, because it's just one big room, he gets up on top of my desk and he puts that can under him and he jumps up and down on it. And he says, these data are no bloody good. Well, he didn't say bloody, but use your own imagination. But these data are no good. All you experts tell me, E-G-G-S-P-E-R-T-S, he just flew a tizzy fit right there, and the whole company is watching him. But another little side to that, I told you it was non-air conditioned. Oh, the building must have been two, three, four hundred feet long, I, I don't remember. Well, everybody smoked then. Well, late in the afternoon, as you're sitting, sitting there and these guys are smoking all, all day long, you can see the smoke layer move down. You could just see it move down. And when he got up on my the people at the other end of the room couldn't see his head. But everybody was just... But after a while, you got to, to know him. But uh, let me tell you how successful that airplane was. Uh, normal max gross takeoff weight uh, that airplane took off uh, 1,950 feet. With that boundary layer control system on it, I cut that down to 850 from 1,950 feet. And landing went from 1,200 feet to 755 feet. So th th those were some of the early practical tests of uh, boundary layer control in, in, in action. And now it happens that the amphibian there was also boundary layer control. Uh, so what we learned on the, this original one was then transformed into, into this one. But we still had the two jet engines, one in each wing, sucking over the, the inboard flap and blowing it out over the outboard flap. And I don't remember if we ever got a CL max of two of 4.2 or not, but we we got those very dramatic reductions in uh, in takeoff and landing. Now, there's one other variant of this that I haven't shown. I wasn't able to get a picture of it uh, during Vietnam. Thailand, which was seeing its share of C-123s during that war wanted a turboprop version, and so they built one turboprop version. Now, to my knowledge, this is the only airframe design that has flown unpowered, piston, jet, turboprop. I think there has not been another vehicle ever that has done that. And that just comes back to where I started from. Those were such exciting times. You never knew what airplane configuration they were going to come up with next, give you a wheelbarrow full of money, and say, go build it and fly it. Uh, we don't do that anymore. And I, again, one of my things with AIAA is trying to convince young people that it isn't a bad thing to work on one airplane through its minute differences for a career. 
And I see in the general aviation world some really interesting, exciting things that uh, maybe we can get the kids excited about again. Uh, but that, that was such fun then. Uh, I haven't had such fun since I took the couch out of my queener. Anyway, uh, as I said, we started with gliders, and look where that took us in only... Let's see, the first glider was built in 1948, and uh, the last variant of the X-18... 1960. That's not very long. It's 12 years, and look what we did. There they are. That's where we started. You've seen where we've been, and I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Don, thank you very much. That's been quite a fascinating story. Um, one that I've not known anything about before, and it's been quite an education for me. Um, now, as is traditional at these lectures, I'd now like to invite questions from the audience. Don, could I ask whether this series of designs was a sort of planned progression all the way through, or was it a fairly ad hoc? Oh, it was ad hoc to the ultimate. Uh, I mean, once every six months, the Air Force would come to us and say, how about, I mean, whoever, whoever thought of taking this bulky glider and making it an amphibian, that, that, was, on, that was absolutely ad hoc. And, uh, and, and, of course, with the X-18, we only had 13 flights. By the way, the flight that went upside down was number nine. We actually did fly it more than that, but I think the premium for the pilots went up a little bit. Almost all of these things were, were ad hoc. And you, you mentioned a, a, an initial flight test crew of four. Was, was that just for the wind tunnel test or for the, the live? Oh, the, the, the wind tunnel test was for four yeah. pilots. Because we had no way that that, that spider web of, of controls, was un, we were unable to miniaturize it. But uh, the real airplane flew, uh, the co-pilot operated the wing tilt yeah. and the pitch to a certain degree. But it was, uh, it was a challenge. I can well imagine, yes. Uh, Frank Armstrong, <coughs> excuse me, uh, ex-chairman of the historical group, so I'm sitting enjoying myself this evening. Well, I hope so. But uh, very much enjoyed your lecture. And um, it took me back to my own earlier days. Um, I have spent much of my career as a propulsion man. I was at the National Gas Turbine Establishment at Pystock in, in Farnborough, and then latterly at the RAE itself. And uh, going back to the, the 1950s, the mid-50s, I can recall that when people realized that with the gas turbine, one could get a great deal of power um, for a very reasonable weight and bulk, then imaginations used, uh, started to run riot, and there were 
many, many schemes for various forms of vertical takeoff aircraft and short takeoff and landing using the, this property of the gas turbine, either with propellers or, or just with jets. And um, a tremendous amount of work was done in this country looking at these things and building various experimental ones and it's uh, clearly you did the same in the USA. But when one looks at what has happened in history since, um, you could see that many of these things uh, uh, were looked at, were often experimented on, and then faded away. And I have the feeling that uh, really somehow the aeronautical community hasn't managed to exploit this vertical takeoff, short takeoff capability really to the full potential. Now, my own feeling is that this is probably for quite good reasons, namely, mainly that the, the economics of the thing mm -hmm. haven't been right or um, in terms of military use, um, again, it's a sort of economics in the sense that the aeroplanes to do this kind of thing would have been just too expensive and that kind of thing. But perhaps I could invite you to give us your views on, um, you know, what happened to vertical takeoff and what happened to, to short takeoff and landing. We have very few examples around in what you might call mainstream civil or military aviation. The Harrier is one, of course, but there aren't many. Thank you. Look at the V-22. Look at the, uh, what do they call it, the Bell, uh, is it the 209? The civil version of the tilt rotor. It's the economics. A vertical flight is uneconomical. Uh, and uh, we've, we've gone with the uh, all the different variants of, uh, of cargo helicopters. Uh, interesting, I'll kill one more minute. I used to work for Hughes Aircraft, and Hughes Aircraft built a helicopter that would lift a railroad car. And it had two jet engines on the side of it, and they took the exhaust. We always come back with the jet engine, right? The, the jet engine exhaust went up the, up the, the hollow shaft out the tips of the out to the tips of the rotor, and that's what spun the rotor. And it looked good. You could you could hear it coming because it would go thump, 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 just like that. And that's how and you could watch the rotor go around. But it's it's just not economically practical. And there is some that say that both the V twenty two and the Bell two hundred nine are not going to be economically. Either it's just a poor way, and economics drives everything. You know what else drives everything? Unspecified or un unrealistic requirements. I mean, this progression here of all these these were gleams in the eyes of colonels out at Wright Field or something like that. Oh, well, sure, give them four or five million dollars at that until that was a lot of money in those days. Uh, let's see if it'll work. What are you going to do with it? Beats the heck out of me, but it sure would be fun to try. <laughs> and it was. And we never lost anybody either in any of those airplanes. Never. But uh, it's a poor answer to your question. But the economics is, 
particularly a vertical flight, has is, is, is always been the killer, both operational and maintenance. Do you think the B-22 will come to very much? Yes. They have worked on it for a very long time. That's right. And uh, once they got that ring vortex under control, why that that helped a little bit. I, what, from my understanding of it, the uh, it's now an operational test, and it's performing its mission quite well. The question will be, how will the civil version sell? That's going to kill air traffic control, I'll tell you that. Thank you. Raffaello Mariani, you said sure was hell fun to try. Um, with that kind of attitude, having that kind of attitude now, do you think we'll be moving a lot more forward now and a lot faster than we're actually doing instead of always saying, well, we can go that far, but it's going to cost too much? Why don't we just try? Why have we lost that spirit, that um, happiness in doing what we, th we all want to do? Well, you know, I would say a short and not right answer is uh, we can't afford to spend the money anymore to do the fun things. But I've been a pilot now for almost 60 years and I look at what's happening in the general aviation industry and there's such fun things coming out now in the general aviation world, not in the military world, because that's big bucks dollars, pounds. But I see a resurgence in the, uh, well, the, the Burt Rutan kinds of people doing things because it excites them. And they scrape up a few dollars and they make it work. But I'll, I'll, I'm going to editorialize now and I hope there's no reporters here. But in our country, uh, the fate of funding uh, aeronautics programs as opposed to space programs is tragic. Uh, and as a matter of fact, the policy now in NASA is that we are not going to invest money in fl flight demonstration programs. We're going to do just basic research and not demonstrate in-flight programs. It's, in the administration's view, it's poor use of funds. So that's a fight. But I'm still hoping we can get... I've got five grandchildren. One of them is going to be an engineer. When each of them gets to be 16, I give them a flying lesson. And if I can get one of them to fly, it'll be the fourth generation of pilot in my family. And before I leave this earth, I'm going to make that happen. Thanks. Uh, my name is James Edmonds. Um, the tilt-wing aircraft was really uh, quite widely photographed in the uh, early 60s when I was in my teens. And, and I'm quite surprised to, to, to hear how few flights it really had um, because of the you know, there was quite a lot of publicity. I wouldn't say it was enormous, but you saw photographs of it all over the place in, in magazines in the early 60s. Um, could you, after the disastrous flight that you described, could, could you, um, you know, tell us a little bit more about how it was sort of closed down? It seems to be closed down very quickly. There was a... I, I expect that what you saw was not that airplane. 
what you saw was the XC-142, which was a Vought, chance Vought aircraft. It was a four-engine tilt wing, which was much more advanced by about five or six or seven years. And that one flew a, a lot of research flights in it. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that's, that's very few people have ever seen that airplane. Uh, but the, the 142 was, a lot of people mistake one for the other, people that I talk to. And so uh, what you probably saw was that. Now, now you get into the controversy of tilt wing versus tilt rotor. Because the Y, the B-22 is a tilt rotor aircraft. And you don't get into quite as many what ifs as, as though you were doing the, the tilt Tilt, the tilt wing. It's a, it's, a, it's a more simple configuration. Uh, but the requirement was the requirement identified well enough and quantified well enough to justify further development? And the answer is no. It's re emerged now with the V 22 applications. But for 30 years, there was no true requirement for that kind of a vehicle. Uh, from the historical point of view, uh, were there many firms like your own, small firms doing this sort of thing in those days? And did you have a lot to do with these other firms? Or did you discuss things like these relatively oddball contracts you were being asked to do? The answer is no to both of those questions. Uh, for whatever reason, this mercurial Russian found people that would listen to him, mostly because he grabbed them by the lapels and shook them. Uh, there were not a lot of, uh, I would almost call them job shop companies that built air these kinds of variants. Uh, and no, we we were so focused on what we were doing that we didn't really interact with anybody else and share information. A little bit on the X-18, but on all of those perturbations on the C-123, those were just so challenging and so consuming uh, that we didn't, do, we, we didn't do what we really should have done, which is share information. But we sure did have fun. I wouldn't change it last 55 years for anything. And that's married to the same woman, too. It's a, they, they go together. My name's George Stone. Um, I'm just slightly curious, uh, and I'm not sure quite why you haven't mentioned it, but the, 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 the firm owned by your mercurial Russian, um, what was the name of the company? Chase Aircraft. Okay, thanks very much. <laughs> that's all I wanted to know. And, and I'll tell you why. You didn't ask me, but I'll tell you because the first glider that he built was wooden. And he had a company in New York City called Chase Furniture Company build it for him. And then the Air Force said, son of a gun, I don't want it built out of wood, I want it built out of metal. I've got to have the name of the company, so it was the Chase Aircraft Company. Makes a lot of sense. So if you hear about the C-123 and somebody tells you it's the Fairchild C-123, don't you believe them. Don Hellman speaking. Uh,
Can I, uh, intrigued about the glider, uh, what was the operational requirement for a metal glider to carry 60 troops? And what was the proposed tug for that glider? The proposed tug. Who, what aircraft was proposed to pull it? The Dakota, the, C, the DC-3. Uh, and I guess the reason for the metal, and again, that was, those were colonels and one stars making those decisions then, and I was just a peon. I think well, those of you that saw World War II, either in direct or in, in movies, very few of those gliders, your horses or, or our wackos, survived the landing. They just broke apart when they landed. These these things would would, would survive. How you get them back to where you can tow it as a mind-boggling experiment. I don't know how you do that. That's right. That's we'll think about that tomorrow. <laughs> no, no, no. That, that's that's uh, well, we, we put that before the change control board, right? I mean, that's what you do now. Ask for incremental funding to get it back to where we were. Right. Uh, any further questions? In which case, I'd like to ask Harry Fraser Mitchell to say a few words, please. Well, Dr. Richardson, we've heard a fascinating lecture. It really is. I, I must agree with you. I do think the 50s era was one of the uh, the best times to be around. Certainly I found it so. I'm sure many of the audience as well. Um, it's wonderful. Uh, the other thing that w I warmed to you straight away, Dr. Richardson, because you said you're an aerodynamicist. So, I mean, they're the only people to be uh, in the industry, of course. <clears throat> The other thing that uh, I found very fascinating was this uh, business of uh, saying, right, well, you know, perhaps you could do, uh, you know, the colonel would come and say, perhaps you could uh, sort of put another wing on that for us. And, yeah, it's okay, uh, you know, another three months, uh, four and a half million bucks, but yeah, okay, we'll do it. So I always thought this was a prerogative of engine companies. I've, I've always felt that if you go to an engine company and say you want a new engine, they say, hmm, yes, all right, well, we've got a turbine there and uh, we've got a couple of stages there for the compressor and oh by the way we've got a, a can there we put it together and put a shaft on it and we'll have a new engine but I'm glad to hear it goes on with aircraft as well and certainly your aircraft and uh, uh, how nice it is to hear from somebody who is actually there I think you mentioned uh, some people you know report about things that they've read about somewhere but how nice it is to hear from somebody who is actually there hands-on and saw the things, did the things, and experienced the shocks as well. Yeah, terror, terror. <laughs> terror, terror, yes, indeed. Um, the, the, the thing that really uh, got me, of course, was the, the aeroplane that um, <clears throat> started off uh, as a glider, and a big one, big metal glider, and then they said, well, okay, uh, we'll put a couple of piston props on it. Yeah, that's all right. And then somebody said, well, hmm, how about a couple of jets then? Four, four in fact. And uh, without really thinking that uh, there's such a thing as a limiting speed, so you just pull the nose up until uh, the thing slows down. Very nice way of working an aeroplane. And then finally they said, well, we better have a turboprop. But you forgot about the rocket. <laughs> no rockets on it. Oh, you really missed out there. <laughs> that would have been great fun. Actually, we did. <laughs> Fairchild did. Yeah, Fairchild put the rockets on. I see. Okay, right. Well, but... Um, <laughs> no, no, of course not. No, I agree with you. The, uh, uh, the the other thing was, of course, I found very interesting was the boundary layer control. Uh, 
bits I've had to do with Bernoulli have been for low drag, but not for high lift. And this is this shows that it does work for high lift. And I'm just surprised it hasn't really carried on. It, uh, you don't seem to have powered lift like that very much anymore, which is a shame, really, because I've always thought, I think the, the phrase was coined a long time ago, probably before I was born, uh, you know, airplanes that land slowly and don't burn up. Very good thing. Uh, the, it's, been a, it's been a wonderful lecture to, to hear. Thank you very much for that. And uh, uh, think of what a CV he could write. You can imagine him, can't you, sitting in front of, uh, you know, in the, uh, the, uh, you know, the board or whoever, and they're saying, well, what do you know about so-and-so? Yeah, been there, done that. Oh, how about jet engine? Yeah, been there, done that. Bandolay control? Yeah, been there, done that. You know, they, they, they'd run out of questions. What, what a wonderful life you must have had. And, and it's not over yet, indeed. And uh, uh, I'm sure your grandchildren will, will appreciate uh, your, your, uh, your getting them into the air as well. Anyway, what, what a good lecture. And uh, uh, fascinating, very beautifully delivered. It's great humor and uh, great charm. So may I ask you, please, to join me in thanking our lecturer in the usual way.